Welcome to Ask the Therapist, a podcast for everyone who's fascinated about how our minds work, mental health and all things therapy. Ask the Therapist is hosted by me, Sarah Rees, a mental health nurse, cognitive behavioural therapist and author of the CBT Journal. I've over 20 years experience of working in the field of mental health and I hope to educate, entertain and simplify all things mental health and therapy. So sit back and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Ask the Therapist. My name's Sarah Rees and today I have a very special guest, Dr. Mary Welford. I'm very lucky to call Mary one of my clinical supervisors. Mary is a consultant clinical psychologist. She lives down in Bood in Cornwall. She's one of the founding members of the Compassionate Mind Foundation with Professor Paul Gilbert. She's author of Building Your Self-Confidence Using Compassion-Focused Therapy, and she's written Compassion-Focused Therapy for Dummies. So it's a great pleasure to introduce Mary. So welcome, Mary, to the podcast. Can you tell us about the work you're currently involved in down in Bude? Well, I'm working with a number of schools in the Southwest, but also nationally. And that is about bringing in compassion into schools, which sounds like a no-brainer. And it is a no-brainer, but uh, that's what I'm doing. Also working clinically across the age span and then doing training and other a range of different projects around the place. So what drew you to working in schools? Was that something that you decided to focus on or was it an idea that was put to you or were you asked to? I suppose working in adult mental health which is where I started, Mm. I kept thinking, I want to get in there earlier. I want to get in there earlier. So there was a real palpable sense of, you know, I wish I'd have seen this person five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So when I had an opportunity to work with younger adults, I grasped it. And then uh, we got a call from an organisation that I was working with who said, we need a counsellor, school counsellor, will you come and provide that? Will somebody come and provide it? So I went into the school and realised that there was approximately 70 children on the waiting list. Mm. And also there was quite a number of staff who were having you know, difficulties as well. And realised that with the best will in the world, actually sitting down and offering one-to-one sessions was not going to touch the sides of the need. How could we work with the whole school around supporting well-being of staff and students? So that's where it started, really. And it was just then word of mouth and providing bits of training that I got asked to do to work with another school and another school and another school. And then it broadened out because obviously teachers are the best people at teaching you know young people yeah so the question then became how do we empower and provide materials and skills and training for the staff to actually do the work that will hopefully be beneficial for themselves but also be beneficial for the young people as well yeah because I'd say teachers are if I look at the and it could just be me but the professions that come to see me teachers are quite high up there they're stressed aren't they I had this idea of six week holidays and all this and oh my gosh they probably work harder than any other profession that I come into contact with was it hard sell to kind of get people that are so stretched to buy into this or I suppose that the key thing is, is that if you recognise with them straight away that 
they've got a lot on their plates and my job isn't to give them something else on their plate but to provide a solution to them so from the outset I say I wish I could give you more you know non-teaching time Mm-hmm. so that you've got more time to sit with the students you've got more time to prepare you've got more time to mark etc but I can't or would they be interested with hearing about ways that may be beneficial or ideas that might be beneficial to them so they have a quieter mind so they have more time in their head and you know and, and it's an invitation to try something different and again, the key thing is, is that then it's word of mouth. So you get somebody else coming along and somebody else coming. So the proof of the pudding is in the eating, really. Yes. If, yeah. if it was that by offering something to staff, if it was making them more stressed, they wouldn't be asking for more of it. Yeah. So it's working. Yeah. So it's working. Hopefully it's working. We're going and to stripping down to the children and... Yeah, and parents as well. So... You know, there's all sorts of different things that we're learning from research, from clinical work. And the the problem is, is that a lot of that information, a lot of those skills are kept, you know, kind of like in books on dusty shelves in places. But what better place to bring them into schools? Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Sounds like a really exciting kind of venture. And what I'm always fascinated about what brings people into deciding to be a a therapist and working in psychology. What was your motivation? When did you decide to come into this field? It's a very interesting job, isn't it? It is a very interesting job. I wasn't somebody who had a career plan. I know people who wanted to become clinical psychologists, who became clinical psychologists. I know people who wanted to be doctors, nurses, electricians, all sorts of things. I I really didn't know what I wanted to do at all. However, if I look back, with hindsight, I can see certain dots Mm -hmm. and how things joined up for me. So I think that from a very early age, well, key memories for me are either memories of connection right or of disconnection and those were either in relation to me or other people and that became quite a driving force so I really I grew up with a felt set you know like feeling strongly for myself and feeling strongly for other people and I wanted to make a difference on both fronts and I thought that genetics was going to be the best way I was going to do that Oh, and uh, and obviously I'm not. A, I didn't go into genetics. I didn't get the grades, and I had to rethink things. And a teacher that I really liked said, "I know you, and I think psychology would be a good option." Yeah. And I looked into it, and I thought that was really, you know, interesting. So I did psychology, but again, I came out of my di- uh, degree not knowing really what I wanted to do with it. Mm. But I just found myself doing a bit. A range of different jobs and in each job I was honing down a bit more about what I liked and what I didn't like mm. so I started moving towards the things that I liked so I liked working with people I liked strangely working with people when they were distressed I liked seeing people make changes and when a clinical psychologist came and did some training in one of the places I was working with I thought that's fascinating so it wasn't my initial degree that taught me about clinical psychology. It was kind of like work experience, really. And then I thought, set my sights on that, thinking I want to do clinical psychology. 
so you did just clinical psychology and then you did you do that in Manchester yeah so I did I did my first degree in Liverpool and then I became a care assistant in London and then I became an assistant psychologist in Bournemouth and then I became an assistant psychologist in Manchester and then did the Manchester training course the doctorate which is quite CBT focused isn't it Yes, very CBT focused. So uh, famously, one of the course team was asked about, you know, what three different modalities of therapy were kind of like offered to the trainees and the member of staff had said cognitive, behavioural and cognitive behavioural. It was very CBT then. Yeah, and you know, that does it a disservice because we did all the things, you know, so I remember systemic teaching and I remember motivational interviewing and some psychodynamic, etc. but still big emphasis on CBT. And then you were one of the founders of Compassionate Mind Foundation, but what drew you to CFT? So I think that CBT is one of the most compassionate approaches that there is because it actually gives people a set of skills that they can apply to their lives etc you know and I suppose I would say a lot of different approaches are highly compassionate but what I was finding was that people who had extremely high levels of shame weren't doing so well so people either clearly wouldn't even come along for appointments or wouldn't be as open or wouldn't talk about things that were difficult but also people who would start to bully themselves you know about the process of therapy and tell themselves off and no matter how much I looked at alternatives and looked at evidence with them etc it didn't seem to be changing things yeah so it seemed as if it was you know people who weren't doing so well at the CBT that seemed to be bullying themselves seemed to exhibit high levels of shame and that led me to the work of Paul Gilbert and I suppose compassion being the antidote to that the idea that if we develop a compassionate relationship with ourselves and with other people that can be an antidote to those difficulties. Mm, You've written extensively on self-criticism what impact do you see that it has on people's lives because I say I mean I I have such a high percentage of people that come to see me if I say what's your relationship like with yourself how do you speak to yourself I'd say about 99% say not well bullying themselves I don't know if it's just that's I know I've done a lot of work on my self-criticism through this kind of training but it still pops up now and again but I don't know do we all just bully ourselves is it? I think that we we do. We have an inbuilt often idea that if we bully ourselves, tell ourselves off, that it will improve things. You know, that if only we bully ourselves enough, then actually we'll make some positive changes and then life will be really rosy. So this this inherent kind of idea that motivates us. So therefore, standard CBT where you're looking at changing the you know that relationship with themselves unless you get at what the perceived function is unless you try and you know work out why am I doing this to myself what am I hoping to achieve for it with it then actually what it can mean is that we we know it's not helpful to us but we think it's helpful to us at the same time so the key thing is is to try and discover what we hope to achieve by criticizing ourselves and then the big question is can I do something that has all the benefits that I perceive self-criticism has without the drawbacks 
is there another way of talking to yourself that has you know that means that you do achieve your goals that does assist you but doesn't mean that you're depressed and anxious and suffering with low self-esteem low self-worth feeling disconnected etc etc yeah there can be lots of blocks to doing that though can't there and yeah huge blocks because it's kind of like we again there's this inherent idea that somewhere floating around in the ether that if we start doing that that means that we're selfish or self-centered and in actual fact you know I can be less self-focused in a way if I look after myself so if you think of the analogy of a crane you know in order to do the work that a crane does it needs a solid base because if it doesn't have a solid base it's going to topple over so we need to create solid bases for ourselves and in doing so actually we can extend further yeah so our, how we speak to ourselves kind of sets that foundation. Yeah. And we often, you know, treat other people very differently, don't we? That's another common thing that I hear that when I say, would well, you speak to somebody else like that? Or why don't you motivate your children like that? To yeah. by criticising them and people say, oh, God, no, I wouldn't speak to anybody like the way I speak to myself. It's it's awful. Don't now you've done all this work on self-criticism. Do you ever find yourself criticising you, you or have you? Yeah, God, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, what is absolutely fascinating is yeah. the fact of, and you see other people going through this process as well. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, quite often people start with, you know, not being aware to the degree to which they're doing it, you know, not stopping because they feel as if it's helpful or they're just not aware that they're doing it to themselves. So we've got to start to become aware that we are doing it to ourselves. So yeah, I still fall into the trap every so often. And, but I'm really quick now to notice that I'm doing it myself and just ask myself, is this helpful? And then it's not about not talking to myself. Again, it comes down to how I talk to myself. Mm. But if I do something, you know, if I, if I do something that's stupid, you know, or, you know, actually, it's not that I say to myself, there, there, it doesn't matter. I'm just more likely to say, you know what, that wasn't your finest hour. How can I work on this? How do I improve this? How do I make it better? Rather than you effing idiot, you know, what did you do that for? That's pathetic. That's, that's Mary of old. Yeah, and that that kind of other way is to just feel so much stronger as you say it. Mm. And so, that, you know, that sense of, so if I'm telling myself off and being critical about something, often that's that's backward looking. You know, you idiot, what do you think about that? What do, you, what do other people think it, you must have people thought of you? You know, that was rubbish, etc. Versus, you know, maybe that wasn't your finest hour maybe you could have done something different in hindsight what would be best to do next time so it pushes you looking forward yeah. into more solutions and yeah this and what tips would you give to people who thought that were listening to this and kind of thinking oh my gosh I'm really self-critical what would be that kind of can you give a few tips to- so first and foremost yeah. give yourself a pat on the back because if you're noticing that yes. you're becoming more aware of it and with awareness comes choice do I go with this Or do I try something different? So number one, awareness building. Number two is ask yourself the question, in my heart of hearts, what do I think I'm trying, or what do I think I will achieve Mm. from bullying myself in this way? So we often have the, the question that we pose to people, if I had a magic pill and I gave you it, 
and you were going to wake up tomorrow and you were never going to be critical of yourself again, what would your greatest fear be? And just thinking about that, and, you know, it's like playing family fortunes. People just come out with all sorts of, oh, I'd, become, I'd become arrogant, I wouldn't improve, I'd become really lazy. You know, all of these different things tip off yeah. people's tongues that hadn't really thought about before. So it makes sense, isn't it? If you think that actually achieve something, you're going to continue to do it. Of course you are, yeah. So then the third question is, if I could give, you know, if you could think about a different way of achieving those same goals without becoming down on yourself, without bullying yourself, without becoming depressed or anxious, disconnected from yourself and other people, would you give that a go? And that's then where the self-compassion comes in. Yeah, that you start building a more compassionate. Yeah. So way. becoming aware. Yeah. What the function is. Mm. And then setting about achieving the same function but with a different way of relating to yourself it's fantastic thank you and in in the jobs that we do day to day we we work with people's distress don't we mm. that's probably one of the biggest questions that I get asked how, how do you do what do you do and how do you manage people's distress day to day how would you say you manage that working with people in distress and struggling it's a tricky one isn't it because you know, there's absolutely no doubt about it. If I'm sat with somebody yeah. who is distressed, I feel with them. Yes. And when I stop doing that, that's the day to most likely stop doing, you know, kind of like this for a job. And in feeling it with them, there's the connection, mm. you know, that I, I strive for. So we connect. But paired with that is a profound sense of admiration for people because people are amazing. Mm. So I sit there simultaneously while somebody's distressed and I'm feeling, you know, with them, some of that, is this real profound sense of how amazing that human beings endure such things and find a way to live. And unfortunately... Sometimes the way that people find a way to live comes at quite a lot of personal cost. And then my, my job is to facilitate them finding a different way mm. that's maybe not beating themselves up, that's maybe not withdrawing, that maybe that's not overstriving, that's maybe, you know, all sorts of different things. But mm. I just sit in admiration. I, I leave work, I can honestly say, I leave work at the, at the end, of, end of the day after having, you know, having my clinical days. And yes, I'm tired, but I am also inspired. And that's, that's my lifeblood. So it charges, uh, it energises you. And- absolutely, absolutely. And how do you manage your stress? Do you, have you got ways of, that you find useful for when you're struggling? What, what are your go-to things? I would be lying if I said I didn't experience stress because I do. And I think that we all do. And sometimes, you know, that's at quite a considerable high level. My general strategy is to avoid it. Right. right. You know, it's a, bit, it's a bit like the, you know, the environmental crisis that we've got. We can do recycling. Yeah. You can reuse things. But the best way is not using things in the first place. You know, so the best way to deal with stress is avoiding stress in the first place. Mm. So I'm quicker to to notice it. 
I try and organize my life so so that there isn't inordinate stresses mm. in it. I'm quicker now when I notice that I'm stressed to withdraw from those situations or to do something, you know, say that I can't do something or introduce something else into my week that would be of help to me rather than pushing on empty and then falling off a cliff. But there are times when just life events seem to come fast and furious and things that you haven't planned for, you know, happen. And for me, it's it's connecting with nature. It's walking. Mm. It's just plugging into the great outdoors would be my, you know, kind of most go to thing. It sounds again like that you spot it, you've, you've learned how to spot it really quickly, get more aware and act on it a lot quicker. Then. Yeah, it's interesting because I think some people would maybe think that I get more stressed now than I used to because I'm quicker to, to withdraw from things mm. or to say I need this or I need that. So, yeah, it's interesting because in times gone by, I wouldn't have acknowledged it and I would have run on empty for a considerable amount of time and then, you know, either collapsed or, you know, used all my holiday trying to get over the stress or or whatever, you know, whereas now it's in my vocabulary quite a lot as in, you know, oh, actually, I need to step back from something or it would help me to do this or I need to plug into you know, uh, my friends more or need to go for a walk, etc. So to an outsider, it might look as if I'm talking about stress more or I'm talking about what I need more or, but in actual fact, it's a sign that I know myself better and I'm catching myself more. Yeah, that's nice, isn't it? And putting yourself first, it's that passionate approach, isn't it? And what would you say you've learned from working with people in your job what what have people taught you would you say I think going back to that other point how amazing human beings are yes. in the same way that we occupy you know kind of like all sorts of different environments the human mind human beings can occupy all sorts of different you know versions of themselves and cope with all sorts of different situations and I suppose in those connections with other people strangely it's taught me to you know that that kind of idea that we're all unique and that we're all work in progress yes yeah I think that's what I've learned the most that we're all kind of struggling we're all working towards something none of us have we all walk around thinking everybody else has got it together apart from me well you know like to, to be you know this is really important thing about there is I don't I don't believe that there is such a thing as a finished therapist mm. or a finished human being because session to session person to person I just learn more and I go on courses and training and I learn from you know conversations all of the time and so it is on all sorts of different levels we're a work in progress that's what that's what my work's taught yeah that's something I've worked with over the last couple of years because I really wanted to get to the point which is why I did the CFT training so that I get this therapy thing I feel like I really nailed it down and I've had to work on acceptance that probably the point where I've nailed it I need to just walk away from it constantly going to be learning and being kinder to myself when I don't get things right Yeah, yeah and there's enjoyment and it's all a journey isn't it you know it's 
I think I think that's that's an absolute key thing that we're all learning. It's all a, you know, yeah. it is a journey, and there's no you know can like finished product. Mm, absolutely, yeah. And that's what that's what's energizing when you you know. Again, there's no doubt about it. There are times when I I bring to mind care you know people that I've worked with and I've thought, oh, I wish I could see them again. Yes. Now I have this knowledge, or now I've got this experience, which is which you know can lead to for lots of therapists to have lots of regrets and lots of guilt and all sorts of other things. But again, that's what CFT taught me. It's we're all doing the best that we can at the time that we're at, but I'm doing the best that I can. Yeah. Yeah, that's lovely. And as therapists, we have um, things that we often we recommend over and over again. Have you got your some stock things that you know that you kind of recommend quite commonly? So it's really difficult to answer because I had a, a top 10 of audiovisual talks yeah. you know, that I would use and then that extended to 15 and then it became 20 and then I had 23 for a while which is a bit of, I don't like the number 23 so that was a bit odd then it went up to 30 and now I've got it all in different categories <laughs> so, <laughs> so, completely overwhelmed yeah it's kind of so yeah, different things but for different people and yeah yeah so I recommend my you know kind of like audiovisual clips yeah, TED Talks, yeah, like, don't you? Yeah, TED Talks. I think they're so accessible, interesting. And if you come at them with an idea of you might take one or two things away yeah, uh, from each, I think that that is, you know, again, enriching. You know, it's amazing. Books-wise, The Compassionate Mind is a great starting, you know, text, conversational. You can hear Paul's voice throughout it um is a really good book to get people started with it you know cft yeah and then then there are you know kind of i do think personal development and self-care training i think is really important for therapists specifically because again lots of our cpd is around acquiring that next skill set but what about the consolidation for oneself you know so this is why you should talk about your retreat the real treat like that yeah, I'm, today. I'm so excited about it which hopefully is this kind of thing isn't it yeah absolutely absolutely so myself and deborah lee love doing training together and so and deborah works within the trauma trauma service and trauma specialty but i you know she does a broad range of different training and i love doing running things with her so we hatched a plan now I live in beautiful Bude and just by the coast. Um, we hatched a plan to start running some retreats in Bude. Uh, we did our first one last year, which we referred to as a real treat for therapists. And it's our second one this year. So it's in May. I think it's the 9th, isn't it? The 9th of May starts. So we're having an amalgamation of different things from yoga on the beach to geology walk to actually learning compassion-focused therapy from the inside out. So hopefully it's replenishing and for therapists on a personal level, but, you know, lots of hopefully ideas and skills that they can take back to their clinical practice as well so that they can share them with others. Yeah. Oh, that'd be brilliant. I'm really looking forward to it. How do people um, find out about it if they want to? If that's I think it's attached to my, I think it's pinned to my profile on Twitter. Right. Okay. Um, it's on Eventbrite as well. Yeah, it's on Eventbrite. So if you put in Compassion in Cornwall into Eventbrite, it's on there. And it's also on the affiliated workshops for the Compassionate Mind Foundation website. 
Right. Fantastic. And if somebody was considering therapy, what would you advise them? What would you recommend? You know, because there's lots of people that I think going to therapy is such a brave thing to do, having done it myself. Yeah. <laughs> How anybody comes through your door, it's amazing, isn't it? But so there's lots of people that kind of ponder with the idea and they're not sure. Is there anything you'd advise them? You see, I would, I would most likely advise people to just be open to the experience. But if they're struggling with shame and self-criticism, I might advise them to actually read something before going along, which is about how we all struggle with it and how we're all work in progress and how we've got a tricky mind and a tricky biology. And if it is that actually that opens people up Mm. to being more open with their therapist that might be a really good starting point yeah a nice foundation a nice foundation because I just think that unfortunately within especially within statutory services time's limited and if we go along and to therapy and we're only just starting to feel more open by you know kind of like halfway three quarters way in you know that that's really difficult it's really really difficult so so it's almost like if it is that somebody identifies themselves as having quite high levels of shame or high quite high levels of of self-criticism I'd suggest you know reading the compassionate mind or you know my my take on CFT is dummies or the self-confidence book but maybe having a read of those yeah aspects of those so that there's an opening before going along yeah it's really good advice yeah because I think it you know life is so tricky and then you sat in a room which I've experienced myself on two occasions you sat in a room with another person mm. and it's very weird to yeah. start off with <laughs> and there's all sorts of things that are bobbing around your head about what can I bring, what can I, what's relevant, mm. you know, what does this person think of me, what do they make of me, all sorts of other things. And that can be a huge barrier to getting out of it what you need. So maybe, you know, kind of like maybe, you know, having a read around something that will help you start to address that before you go along that, I, I would suggest that. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. And then my final question, which is one I like, it's a bit random. (laughs) I like random. (laughs) If you could have a conversation with your 15-year-old self, what would you you say to her? So let me think. So my 15-year-old self, so that would be, I did O-levels. So it would be coming up to exams. Yeah. I know that I was struggling with friendships. I know that I didn't like myself that much. I was highly judgmental of myself. I had issues to do with weight and food. So it helps me to answer that question, to think where I was when I was, so that's me when I was 15. I would most likely advise myself to trust myself a bit more, Mm. you know, to look within and truer to myself rather than what I perceived other people wanted of me and other people expected me to be like so to listen to and to nurture myself more 
Right, focus inwards. And... Yeah, and and not be as you know, come out back to that, not be as down on myself, and be be more self compassionate. Do you think that's where your interest in self confidence came from? And yeah, I think it is funny, isn't it? I think a lot of people who are asked to write books, yeah, are asked to asked to write them by virtue of the fact that they have struggled themselves or they verbalize that they've struggled themselves in that area you know not all not all areas but you know there is that so certainly I've understood therapy and how I've learned it is not only thinking about you know textbooks and and what information is provided but actually thinking about myself you know how does that relate to me how does that relate to myself and and it's a bit of a litmus test yeah actually would learning to talk to myself in a different way and connecting with myself in a different way would it have been helpful to me yes so therefore Mm -hmm. I advocate and has it been helpful to me to learn that yes so that's what I advocate to others Mm -hmm. so I think a lot of it comes from my own personal learnt experience Mm -hmm. fantastic if somebody wanted to kind of keep in touch with you or kind of know a bit more about what you do where are you most active I use Facebook largely to just share other things funny animals you've got the same taste as me we share little animals (laughs) funny animals and just amazing things that just make you go wow yes you do it's a nice way to use Facebook I used to put all my holiday snaps on and then thought oh god use it Facebook but now I use it as fluffy animals and little puppies and I know (laughs) absolutely so it's things that make me go wow you know in a really and I I want it to be I find it difficult sometimes to be on social media when you see things that horrify you yes you know and I do think that there is a place for us to be woken up to things that horrible things that are going on in in the world etc but I think we get bombarded by that too much yeah so so I like the fact now that most of my news feed as well it, that comes up is flu- fluffy animals <laughs> people do strange things you know can like or, or you know strange looking ones there was a bird on last week that looked as if it had a bonnet on its head it was really oh, hilarious I- so and it made me laugh for about 10 minutes fantastic <laughs> so Facebook I use for that <laughs> right and um, Twitter is a platform that I use so I'm at Dr Mary Welford and that allows me to connect with amazing people and we have a you know a hashtag 365 days of compassion community that Chris Winston kind of like coordinates it's amazing yeah I use Twitter to kind of like share things and keep in contact with people and so some people I only I only found out I think last year that people can direct message you and then it goes into into a separate area the first time I noticed that, there was about 50 kind of like messages to me that I hadn't obviously hadn't responded to, replied or anything. So I now realise that, you know, I sometimes keep in contact with people, direct messaging yeah. through there. But, you know, always work in progress is my website, which is www.compassioninmind.co.uk. But that's very much work in progress. That's lovely. Well, thank you so much. That's been absolutely brilliant.